Uh, quick note before we get going. Talking about sacraments, right? With, uh, with baptism. What's so interesting about sacraments, you know, the uh, Genesis starts off with the story about how God, He creates the garden, and the garden is the first sacrament, if you would. It's the first place where heaven and earth meet. It's almost like they overlap, if you can picture that. And so what happens in the garden is it becomes the first temple. And so after the garden, we see there's tents, there's tabernacles, there's a temple, but then something else changes because then God, what's sacred, the place where God and man meet, goes from the temple, and then it fills Jesus. He becomes this walking embodiment, this place where heaven and earth meet each other. And then something powerful happens when Jesus uh, rises from the dead. He creates this promise. And it's this promise that wherever his spirit resides, he resides as well. And so what actually becomes sacred? The, The place where God and man meet is not in the water. What's so funny about it is that the place where God and man meet is now inside us, the sacred temples of God's spirit. And so what makes the water special, what makes communion special is not that that's the place God said to meet with us, it's the place that we come to meet with God. Amen? Do you see it? It's a beautiful thing. And so now, and so now we are to, to be these, these places where heaven and earth overlap, where when people come in contact with us, heaven is invading the space that we are in. Amen? All right, so we are in week three of our Heaven series. This has been fun so far. Agreed? No? Okay. Well, you know. <laughs> well, we're talking about hell today, so sure, let's go ahead and get, get the smiles and chuckles out of the way, because we're about to get serious. Week one, uh, you know, we want to focus on the Garden of Eden. We want to learn, you know, kind of what does heaven look like? What is, what's this place going to feel like? And so we tried to summarize it in... Uh, Two senses. Here's the first one. So in the garden, God said his creation was really good. And his plan throughout scripture was to redeem and reconcile us and it, which culminates in the new heaven and new earth. Stuff right there. So in the scriptures, we see this picture where again, God and man, earth and heaven are now connected in the garden of Eden. That's separated. So now heaven and earth, God and man are separated. And so in Christ, all these things are reconciled. And so In the book of Revelation, we see this picture where heaven and earth are coming back together. God and man are coming back together in what Christ has done, in the Messiah and the King who's making everything right, bringing everything back the way it's supposed to be. And so the way this story ends is not with this place being destroyed and us flying away to heaven. It's actually with heaven and earth coming together and creating a new thing. And this new thing is called the new heaven in the new earth. And that is the place where we dwell forever. And so when we start asking ourselves, what's it going to look like? There's two pictures in the scriptures that we get. The first is the garden. Okay, the same creator of the garden is the same creator of the heavens, the same creator of the new heaven and earth. And so we see in the garden, it, it's a picture of the style of creation that God's going to make. And even further than that, the ultimate picture of the hope that we have of what heaven's going to be like is the resurrected body of Jesus. Amen. And so what we have is Jesus, he rises from the dead, and he comes back in the spirit, and he's flying around everywhere, and he's not hungry, you know, he he didn't have time to hang out with anybody, he's just the spirit jellyfish, right? He comes back in this body. Now, it's a pretty, you know, special body, you know, he can't walk through walls sometimes, but he can also be touched. 
His wounds can be felt, and he can be talked to. He knows who they are. They know who he is. And something even more interesting than that, the first thing he asks for when he comes back is what? Food. I want to eat, he says. And the first thing Jesus does when he comes back in his resurrected body is he eats with his disciples. And so, in the resurrected body of Jesus in the Garden of Eden, we have a very good kind of picture of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. We will have bodies like His. It will be familiar to us. The experiences will be familiar, but it will not be the same. Do you see it? See it? Again, it's a hope that should be exciting, and I think it's challenging for most of us, because I think most of us haven't really seen it in the Scriptures, and I know for myself it's been extremely encouraging to define us in the Word of God. Week two, last week the question was, okay, so we understand that heaven and earth are coming back together to create this new heaven and this new earth. This, it's a picture of marriage, that these two things that were always uh, created for each other, this, this idea that man and woman which were created to come together, and when they would, they would come together in union and covenant, they would create life. They would birth a new creation. And every time that we have marriage and babies, these things that mean so much to us and have so much meaning, we are seeing a picture of what's going to happen whenever God and man come together. And so we see the picture of God and man in heaven and earth, and there's going to be cell phones, and it's going to be awesome. I'm just messing. It's... When it happens, I always check my own phone. I'm like, oh my goodness. I've done that many times. So what's happening here, again, is again this picture of heaven and earth, God and man. And so what happens is when heaven and earth collide, we have the new heaven and new earth, but that's not all we have. We see a city that begins to come down, and the new place of dwelling is not a garden anymore. It's now a city. And so in this city, what we see is, is that uh, God's redemption climaxes in the city where he, the faithful, and the innocent will dwell together forever. And in its walls, every manner of good thing and happening is for the enjoyment of those who will eternally engage in worship, creation, stewardship, bathed in ever-deepening community. (sighs) Amen? Again, if that's a mouthful, it's supposed to be. It's 45 minutes crammed into one paragraph. All right, so if you want that to be broken down more, I encourage you to go back and it's on the podcast on the website. Now, week three, we are moving away from heaven a little bit this week. We're going to talk about hell. If it's your first week here at Grace Church, you have really awesome timing. This might be the first time I've ever had a sermon just on hell in my entire life, I believe, okay? So if it's your first time, this isn't exactly what we talk about every week, but it is something that's important to cover. Now, the reason that we're going to cover hell today it's because typically when we think about heaven, we tend to always think about heaven and its opposite, if you would, is hell. It's, it's pair, if you would. And so almost every time you hear someone talking about heaven, you always hear them talk about hell. And the first thing that we understand in the scriptures is that while we often pair heaven and hell together, when you begin to skim through your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you will find heaven and earth are paired together in context at least three times more often in the Scriptures than heaven and hell. And here's the reason. We don't even see hell in the book of Genesis. We don't see hell as part of God's creation. It was not part of God's original plan. And so when when God created heaven and earth, and when God created man, these things were created to go together. They were always meant for each other. They were compatible parts, if you would. 
But because of the fall, because of the garden, because of, of the separation of heaven and earth, now there had to be the creation of this other thing, and this thing that we have come to call hell. And so it's really interesting because in the Old Testament, the Jews did not really talk very much about the afterlife. Yeah. The one thing we've learned as we've covered the gospel, heaven, uh, the parables, is that the Jews were very much worried about this life. The way that they understood the salvation of God, the favor of God, the hand of God, the presence of God, was all about God invading this time and space. And so, in the Old Testament, when you begin to read through it, there's only a handful of mentions of hell and even of heaven. These are both two themes that the Jews are not extremely keen on. But they did have ideas of it, they did have thoughts of it. But again, in the New Testament is where we really begin to see heaven and hell both appear on the scene in a much more dramatic fashion. Are you guys ready to learn about hell today? Have mercy. You guys are quiet normally, and now we're going to talk about hell. It's going to be crickets in here, right? If you guys could bring my voice down just a hair. I don't like hearing my voice. I mean, you need to hear my voice? Oh, my goodness. I had someone ask me if I watched my sermons. No, I don't watch my sermons. <laughs> that would be just torture right there, I'm telling you. Here we go. Okay, if you guys are ready for this, let's jump into it. Do you guys have your Bibles? Let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 11. We have been spending lots of time in the book of Revelation, especially chapters 19 through 22. Here in chapter 20, we're about to see the advent, the, the arrival, if you would, of a, of a new role of Jesus. This role of Jesus is his role as judge. Let's go ahead and read it. Chapter 20, verse 11. And it says, So then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. Again, if you guys can picture what John is seeing, he, he's seeing all these crazy images. And so he's seeing this throne, and as his throne arises, as the judgment seat of Christ rises... You see that the old heaven and the old earth are fading away. And it says because there was no place for them. And basically to understand this when you're going to break it down in the Greek is that in this new thing God is starting, there's no room for what was former. We'll explain that more as we go. Verse 12, and it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Pause right there. Do you, you guys remember the first week of the, uh, the Heaven series where we had that really awkward moment whenever we all realized that if what Heaven ultimately is is a new Heaven and a new Earth, then what is Heaven right now? Yes? When we talked about that, I had a bunch of really frustrated faces looking at me like, what are you talking about? Okay. And uh, some Christian uh, traditions have called the present Heaven uh, paradise, if you would. But if you see what's happening here, in this new creation of God, when Jesus fulfills his role, and again, we have this new heaven and this new earth are being birthed over here, there's also a new form, if you would, hell itself is going through the same process, but, it, but the results are very different. And so what's happening is when Jesus is coming back, you're seeing this thing where heaven and earth are, are being 
change. They, they must go through this transformation to exist in the new kingdom that, that Jesus is going to reign. But they go through a new, if you would, a new creation where they are formed into something new and beautiful. Hell itself is tossed into the where? Into the lake of fire. Death and hell itself are tossed into the lake of fire. So one kind of a side note, if you're very interested about talking about hell, the place that we talk about when we talk about hell, I think ultimately, as of right now, the present hell is very similar to what we'd say when we talk about the word paradise. It's, it's, the, it's the present heaven is where the saints are in this moment. It's some kind of a, a consciousness with God, but their bodies are not fully resurrected. They're not fully present with God in their resurrected bodies. And then now, the current place of those who are not going into the new city, is in this place we refer to in the Greek word Hades here, hell. And it's some kind of a conscious place, and it is not all those wonderful things that we talked about when we talk about heaven. But it itself, everyone who's in it, is pulled out of it temporarily. And this place itself, and death, and Satan, and the beast, and the false prophet, all that good stuff is all tossed into the lake. Ah. <sighs> Having fun yet? My goodness, this is just an exciting week, isn't it? Okay, let's just get through this. How about it? Here we go. So death and Hades are thrown to the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, so what we see first is this. As we study hell, if you're taking notes, here's the first thing. When we talk about hell, we have to talk about judgment. And so the first thing that we talk about when we talk about judgment is who is the judge? And what we see is that the ultimate judge, the one who is sitting in the seat to declare things good or bad, right or wrong, going to the city of God or not going, or being left on the outside of the city, and we'll talk about that more, the judge alone is Christ. And here's why. Because he's the only one who is the rightful judge. Jesus takes his seat as judge, the only man qualified. He retakes the seat of God, which was stolen in the garden. Do you guys remember as we talk about the Garden of Eden, that what Adam and Eve ate of was not the, sin of the, was not the tree of the knowledge of evil. What they ate of was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to have this knowledge of what is good and evil means to be able to judge, right? To be able to decide for yourself what is right, what is wrong, which direction you want to go, which things need to be, which things do not need to be. And so in essence, what God was telling them, he was saying, this is the one tree you must not eat of. You can eat of the tree of life all day long. You cannot touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the seat of judgment is God's seat alone. God alone has the ability to handle this, this, this heavy weight of knowing what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. And so what happens here is that, and if you see this, it's a powerful thing. Because man has eaten from the tree, and this cannot be reversed or undone. Instead of God coming in the form of the Father and saying man is no longer the judge, what he does is he sends a man to judge for him, and the man is who? Jesus Christ. The book of Acts, the book of John talk about this in depth. And so the man, the second Adam, as scriptures call him, Jesus Christ, he's the only man who has the ability and has earned the right through suffering to sit in the seat of judgment. And what you have to understand, if you've taken notes, 
is that new creation starts. This, this final stage, this final process of all things being made right starts with Jesus as judge. Do you see it? And so we did what we have to understand here when we're talking about judge, we're talking about justice. And so with Jesus as judge, all wrongs and injustices will be acknowledged and made right. This is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. And as you're reading this in the book of Revelation, John is seeing all this happen very quickly, okay? And so he's seeing the seat rise up. He's seeing the old heaven, the old earth. They're fading away. He's seeing this judgment taking place. And then all of a sudden, he's seeing this, this new heaven and new earth. And they're colliding. And he's seeing all of a sudden the city come out of heaven. And he's seeing what the city is like. And so, again, if you can kind of put yourself in his shoes, he's sitting here almost watching this, you know, this thing play out in front of him. And so this isn't something that's taking place over you know, so many years. This is something that for him is taking place right in front of his face. And so what's taking place here is that the only way that Jesus can establish his kingdom where all things are right, where there is no death or loss or sorrow or pain or injustice, is for him to first sit as judge and to decide what is good and what is bad, what is, what is allowed into the city, what is not allowed into the city. And so while often when we talk about judgment, we always want to talk about personal salvation, that's part of the judgment seat. But understand that he is judging all things. Meaning, to reconcile, as we've learned before, to reconcile is to make things right. Okay, things that were out of balance to put them in balance. Things that were far away to bring them back together. And so what he's doing here is everything that's just not quite correct, he's making everything right. And so, if you notice, when he stands up to judge, what goes into the lake of fire is not just people. The, the first thing mentioned there we see is what? Death and hell itself have no place in the new creation of God. These are things that are going to be destroyed. And so again, it's a painful thing for us to see this, but if you could kind of try to put yourself in a different, in a different seat. Have you ever experienced a wrong against you? Um, you went through something in life where someone did you so wrong, but no one knew about it. No one acknowledged it, maybe. You know, maybe people knew about this terrible thing that happened to you, but no one would talk about it. No one would address it. In this life, some of the worst pains that we can go through is injustice that's not addressed. There's something about speaking about evil that's happened that brings healing. And so the first thing that we see with the judge is that he addresses every single wrong, every single injustice, every single murder and rape and everything that was stolen, everything that was abused, all perversion, all death. He is addressing every single wrong. So everyone who, who has ever been wronged or hurt or stolen from or abused or neglected, they have their time where Jesus is acknowledging them, saying, I see what you went through and it was wrong. And it will not enter into the city with you. You will never have to face or deal with this injustice ever again. Because I am the judge and it shall not go through the gates of the city. Are you seeing it? Now, one of the terms that we see that's used in the scriptures to talk about hell is this word Gehenna. And again, I don't want to waste too much time going into what it means, but basically it's referred to this, this actual place that was outside of Jerusalem. And it has a long history um, to Jews and had all sorts of, you know, very terrible meanings. 
But the one thing that we see with this is that we see this term for hell, if you would, or for everyone who's not in the city. It's referred to as being outside of the city. And Jesus, in his parables, he would use these, these analogies of whether it was a city or a feast or a wedding. And he would use these analogies talking about how, uh, you know, how he and the Father were sending out these invitations for everyone to come to the wedding feast, for everyone to come to the wedding ceremony, for, for everyone to come to the party, for everyone to come to the city. And yet, in, in each parable, the people who received the invites are the ones who decided not to come. And so, in the parables of Jesus, we get this picture where he is using all these different uh, parables to explain that the city of God has sent out invitations to all. And the only ones who will not be in the city are the ones who choose not to receive or accept the invitation of God. We see this especially in the parable of the two prodigal sons. We see this parable where this one son, he goes out, he does all these wrong things. He seems to be the one who's not going to be able to get into the party. He's not going to have a place in the family. But when he repents and he returns, he accepts the invitation of his father. He's brought into this feast, this banquet. The whole city is, is invited to come to this banquet. And so they have this banquet table. And so the son who was just a few moments ago bringing disgrace to his father, he has a place in the family of God. But the other son, the one who did all the right things, he chooses to decline the invitation. And the parable ends with the bad son that we all see has his seat at the table and the other son who apparently did all the right things in our eyes but declined the invitation. He's on the outside of the, the feast and he is gnashing his teeth and complaining against his father. This understanding is what we see throughout all the scriptures about what happens in hell. It is this place where everyone who does not desire to receive the invitation into the kingdom of God, into the city of God, this is where they go. And what's, what's, what's very scary and powerful about the parables of Jesus was he was always attacking the people who felt secure. The ones who believed that they had the invitation, that they had earned the right to be in the city, to be at the table, to be with Jesus, they were always the one that he was saying, you don't know it yet, but in your actions you think you've earned it, but in your heart you have, you have rejected me and my invitation. And so, if anything, what's very scary about the parables of Jesus, and we covered this in K-Cups in August, is that the parables of Jesus should make us very uneasy and should make a sinner very, very happy. Because the ones that Jesus always said are the ones who need to be evaluating themselves are the ones who feel like they're already in. They already have their ticket. They already have their seat at the table. They already have their house prepared for them in the city of God. And it's us who are supposed to be constantly Checking our hearts. Do you see it? If you guys have your Bibles, go to Revelation 22. Uh, 22, verse 12. As you guys go there, I'm, I'm just going to start reading for us. It says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. We see this judgment as well. The other judgment we see, we see two different forms of judgment. We see judgment in the terms of people who are coming into the city and people who are not coming to the city. Then we see a second judgment. For all those who are coming into the city, there's this time where Jesus sits as judge to, to bestow gifts upon us. Those who have accepted the invitation, who have chosen to lean and trust upon Jesus in their life in this world. And so what happens is when we begin to meet him at the gates of the city, he is sitting as judge now in a joyous position. He gets to hand out good gifts to his children who have chosen to obey him, follow him, and to pursue him in this life. And, uh, 13, it says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, 
the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice the magical arts, sexual immoral, the murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to, to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who, who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And if you notice again there, those who are outside, verse 15, and verse 14 talks about those who are coming into the city gates. In verse 15, he mentions those who are on the outside. And it sounds as if he's talking about acts of righteousness. He talks about those who wash their robes. But then he, he, he follows it up by saying, actually, those who are coming are those who receive the what? The free gift. Those who desire to drink of the water of life. Those who choose this thing. And if you notice the last... Uh, description, if you would, of the dogs who are out of the city. He says, those who practice falsehood. It's really easy when he talks about, like, you know, murderers, like, you know, sexually immoral. Oh, I'm not them, right? But he says, oh, yeah, and then everyone who practices falsehood. Should that, like, make you, like, can you check? I mean, really, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Well, okay, I guess we're all good, amen? Jesus was... He's my favorite to read, but he's also the most uncomfortable to read because he never allows anyone to feel comfortable except for the one that no one thinks should get into the city. And he's always checking, not the outward actions, he's always checking the intentions of the heart. And this idea of falsehood, this goes all the way back to the intentions of the heart. And the one thing we see in the scriptures is that what it means to follow Jesus is not to be perfect, is not to abstain from every sin. It means that in the heart that this person is intending, meaning the deepest part of who you are desires Him. The deepest part of who you are plans and intends to follow Him to the best of your ability. It's not saying that, that you will be able to. The entire scriptures are about us who stumble as we follow Him. And the, the only way we can even do this thing is through the grace of God. But it's about this place in the heart where the deepest part of us, where there is no falsehood, we deeply, sincerely intend, we plan, we want, we yearn for, we want to follow Jesus. And then the rest of our life is, is, is a, a comedy of us trying to and the grace of God allowing us to. And so the, the one thing that I encourage you to see in this again is it's not that all those who practice magical arts are not going to heaven. It's all of those who have this false exterior. The ones who are coming in are the ones who, and if you notice, he says the falsehood, those who practice falsehood are not coming, but all those who thirst, all those who desire, all those who actually want to receive the invitation, who want the, the, you know, to drink from the water of life, they are the ones who are safe in the kingdom of God. We should constantly be evaluating and wrestling in our hearts. Now, Who's there? Who's, who is outside of the city? The lake of fire, as we've seen in the Scriptures, is the destination of death, hell, Satan, and angels and humans who have chosen to follow Him. Hell is locked from the inside. Jesus' parables repeatedly emphasize the invitation of the city to all those who would simply decide 
to decline being found outside the city. Meaning it's locked from the inside, meaning only people who want to be there will be there. And in the deepest part of their hearts, those who do not want to yield, submit, embrace, repent the work of Jesus Christ, they get exactly what they desire. They will find themselves on the outside looking in. Now, we come to the hard question, I think, also about, you know, why? Why? Why does it have to be a hell? And I've heard all sorts of different reasons for it and different uh, arguments for the righteousness of God. You know, there cannot be sin in the city. Um, I've heard arguments for, you know, understanding that in order for, for Jesus to provide this place of absolute life and freedom, liberty, purity, goodness, and safety, he cannot allow anything or anyone who would bring in anything other than that. But one of the other arguments I've heard is about love. And the argument is this. It's that love cannot be forced upon anyone. Love can simply be chosen. The moment love is forced, it, it ceases to be love itself. And so for this God of love to extend this invitation into this new creation, into this new life, this life with no end, this life with Him, because again... The relationship with Jesus is covenant. Our relationship with God is not a picture of marriage. Marriage is a picture God gave us of our relationship with God. And, and that picture is one of absolute commitment. And, you know, I'm sure, I don't want to raise any hands, but a marriage where you don't want to be with the other person is not very pleasant. <laughs> Wouldn't call it a marriage, would you? It's an arrangement, right? It's a ball and a chain. How about that? And so Jesus will not force anyone into this, this the covenant, into eternity with him who does not desire. Love must be chosen. Now, we're about to get into some hairy, sticky stuff, okay, so stay with me. There are three predominant views of what happens outside of the city of God in Christianity today. Three prominent views. I want to teach you all three of them. I want you to see them. I want you to, if you're passionate about this, I encourage you to study them out. Uh, spend some time on this, but I'll give you a, a, an intro to it, and uh, we're going to see where this goes. Here's the first one. The first view on what happens outside the city, uh, hell if you would, if that's the word that we want to use. Again, we understand there's more than just hell. We, now we see there's a lake of fire, okay? And so what happens outside the city, God, here's the first view. It's called conscious torment. Here's what it's about. In, in, in the conscious torment view, God's punishment as, is as eternal in duration, meaning the punishment of God lasts for eternity. So, in the same way that the favor of God, the blessing of God, is, is life without end. There's no end to your relationship with God, to your, your, your enjoyment of the community of God, of heaven, of this uh, new earth, this new heavens, of your ability to enjoy a relationship with your family and friends and with Jesus himself. There's no end to this experiencing, creating, enjoying, uh, rest, pleasure, all these different things. There's no end to that. And so if there's no end to that, and the argument is, well then, for the punishment of God, it must be eternal as well. And so for the, the conscious torment uh, approach to hell, it's, it's this, it's simply that people who choose to be on the outside of the city will have the opposite of the city. And what they will have is eternal torment and suffering. Torture. Forever. With no end. If you guys want to see a different verse on this, if you guys have your Bibles, go to uh, Revelation 14, verse 10. 
Actually, I'll start in verse 9. It says, And the third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too would drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep His command and remain faithful to Jesus. Do you see this? The smoke of the torment will rise forever, day and night. And if I had to guess, I'd guess that because of the part of the country we all have grown up in, uh, this is probably the view most of us have been taught and most of us see in the Scriptures. There is lots and lots and lots of scriptural uh, basis to, to hold to this understanding what happens to those who are on the outside of the city. Now, I want to show you a second view. This is probably the only other view of what happens outside the city that actually has lots of scriptural support. Um, this is called annihilationism. I'll explain this. It says God's punishment is eternal in consequence. Here's what this means. For, for the conscious torment. It's saying that the, the punishment is eternal in, in duration, meaning it never ends. For someone from this school of thought, what they're saying is that the punishment, the judgment of God, meaning it's, it's final, if you would. There's no overturning the, the judgment and the punishment of God. It, is, it will be enacted without being... Uh, questioned or revoked for all eternity. And, and in this, in this eternal consequence, judgment is fulfilled in temporary suffering. Uh, people who see this view of, of hell believe in hell itself. They believe in the lake of fire. They believe that um, in the lake of fire there will be suffering. But they believe that in the lake of fire what we see is a picture of the second death. If you remember that, that passage that, that we read where it said the lake of fire is the second death. And what they believe is that we see Jesus who, who's on the cross in victory and he comes back as his king with his sword and his armies. He's coming back to finish the battle. And that what he does is he vanquishes his enemies. He vanquishes evil and death and Satan and everyone who desires to go with him. And so that while there is torment in the lake of fire, fire destroys, it annihilates. And so that while there is torment and there is pain, it is only temporary because the ultimate result of the fire is to be destroyed. Because in the new creation of God, there's no place for death or for evil or for rebellion. And so they will cease to be. They argue that this is a more faithful approach to understanding the love of God. A God who is righteous and loving, who, who has mercy and justice. And it, to them, it fulfills all the different boxes. Again, I'll encourage you this. I'll say this is the only other approach to hell uh, besides eternal torment that has lots and lots of basis uh, scripturally. And both of these views are considered, uh, what's the word for that? Um, both of these views are considered accepted. These are both considered to be acceptable Christian understandings of hell. Now, there's a third view. And I want, I want to teach you that as well. It's called universalism. In this approach to hell, God's fire of wrath is a purifying fire. 
preparing all people for ultimate inclusion in God's reconciled world. What this is, is they're saying that the fire of God, which we see throughout the Old Testament, becomes this purifying fire. Because, you know, anyone who's played with fire, we know fire does multiple things, right? If you put something in fire, it does things. But we've noticed with fire, if you put certain things in fire, it reacts differently. So if you put a log into a fire, what's going to happen? It's going to turn into ashes, right? But if you put steel into fire, what's going to happen? As you heat the fire more and more and more, it's going to begin to, to burn out the impurities in that metal. And so what they argue is that in the Scriptures we see a picture of hell where it is the place where everyone in all creation is purified and prepared to be included in the new world of God. So everyone makes it somehow. But those who receive Christ, those who embrace the work of Jesus, they get to skip over, if you would, the uh, fire part. Now, I would not be uh, doing my job if I didn't tell you this. This is not considered to be an accepted uh, Christian doctrine on hell. Um, we consider this to be heresy. You will rarely ever hear me use the H word. It's like the atom bomb when it comes to church and theology. You know, uh, I think I've been called a heretic four or five times. So <laughs> you will not hear me use the word H, the H word very much. But this, my opinion is this. I believe that every Christian should deeply desire for this to be the truth. Now, I know that's troubling to you, but fundamentally, we've been taught in Scriptures that as we have been forgiven, so we should forgive. The only reason that we ever want someone else to suffer is either one, because we have been wronged, or two, because we want to feel secure. And so, knowing that there's a line, knowing that someone is on the other side of the line, makes me feel more secure that I'm not on that side of the line. So when I get to see someone who's a terrible sinner, they're an awful person, they're a rapist, they're a murderer, I say, well, at least I'm not that person, I should be on the good side. Neither of these reasons are justified in Scripture for us to want someone to suffer and to be tormented. With that said, I believe every Christian should want this to be true, but I don't believe this is true. There's just not basis in the Scriptures for it. And... Again, uh, you know, I, I believe that, I hope, I hope one day that we show up with Jesus and that he says, hey, look, guess what? Everyone get the made it. That'd be great. But in the scriptures, that's not what we see, especially in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus was very clear. There is only one way, and that is through him. And that, and, and that there will be people who choose to choose not him. Yoda, I guess. Who... <laughs> Who will not choose Jesus? <laughs> and so again, while, while my heart, uh, you know, in compassion and mercy, I, I, I believe, I would, would hope that to be true. I, I, I can't teach you that it is. It's not in the scriptures. It's not validated. Um, it's just not there. But, you know, I always want to teach you. I always want you guys to be aware of what's out there. I want you to be aware of, of, of different hopes or understandings that people have. And Here's the bottom line of this. There are gates, there is a gate, and there are walls to the city of God. Now, in the actual city of God, I don't believe there actually be, you know, walls. I mean, again, the actual new creation is all of the universe. You know, it's cosmic. But the idea is that there is exclusion in the city of God. There are people who are on the inside and people who are on the outside, and we cannot avoid that reality. And so what happens for us as Christians, the way that we have to react to this 
is that we have to understand certain things. One, when we talk about hell, we need to understand what we are supposed to be celebrating. Uh, you know, with this topic, one of the reasons I, I, I don't always teach very much on this is because I, it's just been taught so much, and I think so much from the wrong angle. I've, I've seen far too many Christians rejoicing about people suffering and, and, and burning, and, you know, it's just uh, not there, okay, in the Scriptures. It's not the way that the church uh, is, is supposed to react. But there are things we are to celebrate. When we talk about judgment, when we talk about hell and heaven, there are things for us as Christians to be excited about, and, and here's what it is. When we talk about hell, we as Christians must be ecstatic and excited and celebrating the fact that this, that death and hell, all evil, all pain, all murder, all rape, all impurity, all sickness, disease, that has an end. When Jesus rises as judge, He will do away with all of that. And that is in hell, if you would, how we rejoice about hell. That Jesus will make everything right. Everything will be right when Jesus is in control. You see it? Amen. Secondly, as Christians, we have to understand that there is a place for mourning when it comes to hell. There is a place where hell should motivate us. It should move us and, 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 and prod us. Uh, the way that we interact with everyone who's not following Jesus should not be of, you know, again, you know, telling them and celebrating the fact that their sin is taking them to a different place. It should be this constant motivator that because of the love of Christ in us, we would lay down our lives to make sure that no one ever doesn't choose Christ. That the people in our lives see so much of the love and the mercy and the goodness and the, the, the resurrection life of Jesus. In essence, that they would see so much of heaven invading earth through us that people would only have one response, to receive the invitation. And I always get questions about truth. Okay, well, when do we speak truth to them? Well, here's the thing. In the Scriptures, truth always refers to first to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate truth. He is the Word incarnate. So the first truth that you are required to tell anyone about is Jesus and the good news of what Jesus has done. What you will find is when you begin to embody Jesus, to share Jesus, to make Him the ultimate truth of your life to everyone around you, people will start the conversation. They will ask you. So what do you think about this? So what about this lifestyle? So what about this choice? Is it possible for me to do this and still be a Christian? And when that happens, you will have the opportunity to address the reality of hell. But you also have the opportunity to reveal the invitation to the kingdom of God. Amen? Would you guys uh, stand with me?